For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Lessons from the Olive Tree. This is part two, Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. So this morning now, we're continuing through uh, our work in Romans chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul now has taken up the subject of his Jewish countrymen and their rejection of the gospel. Paul has taken up the, the subject of his brethren according to the flesh and their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not an academic exercise for the Apostle Paul. This is not mere academic theological egghead sitting on a pedestal somewhere talking about exalted theology, right? This is not an exercise, an academic exercise. Paul knows that apart from a justifying righteousness given as a gift of God through faith, through faith alone in Christ alone, Paul knows that apart from that justifying righteousness through Christ, the vast majority of his brethren according to the flesh will perish in their sins, They're going to perish in their sins. And in chapter 10, verse 1, his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. This is not an academic exercise for the Apostle Paul. This is near and dear to his heart. But although this is no mere academic exercise for Paul, he understands that the only way he's going to get through to them, right? The only way that he's going to reach any of them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to reason with them through the scriptures. We have to know what the Bible says, and we have to understand what the Bible means by what it says. Paul knows they need to hear from God. They have misunderstood their Old Testament, and Paul wants to explain it to them. Now, Paul does hear what he has done since his conversion in Acts chapter 9. What is Paul doing? Paul is turning to the authoritative text of the Old Testament to confound the Jews, proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's going to turn to the text of the Bible, and he's going to reason with them from the scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Christ, that the gospel is the way of salvation. Now, in Paul's ongoing encounters with the Jews, the primary objection of the Jews is essentially this. If the gospel that Paul preaches is true, if that gospel is true, and if salvation is a free gift to anyone, even the Gentiles, on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works of the law, then God has abandoned his covenant with Israel. God has abandoned the promises that he made to Abraham. God has dealt unjustly with Judah and his word is null and void. That's essentially the the objection. And if the gospel is true, then God has forsaken Israel. Blindly confident in their misunderstanding of the Old Testament, the Jews would reject their promised Messiah and charge God with unrighteousness. They were sincere And they were sincerely wrong. They didn't get it. They had it wrong. This is no academic exercise. A lot goes seriously wrong when you fail to understand the Bible. A lot goes seriously wrong when you fail to apply the Bible. There are countless millions 
who will perish in their sin, sincere and sincerely wrong. We have to understand the text of scripture. We have to understand what God is saying to us. We have to apply the Bible correctly. So in his ongoing encounters with the Jews, and now here in this letter to the church at Rome, Paul takes up that essential objection in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11. It's this section of text, Romans 9 to Romans 11, where Paul is dealing with that objection on the part of the Jews. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not that the word of God has come to nothing. It's not that the promises of God are null and void. It is not, verse 6, that the word of God has taken no effect because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He's not fulfilling them in the ways that the Jews have misunderstood. He's not fulfilling them in the ways that the Jews have thought. Not all Israel are of Israel. Nor, verse 7, are they all children of Abraham because they are the physical seed of Abraham, but rather in Isaac your seed shall be called. In those children of promise. God has not abandoned the terms of the covenant. God is faithful to his word. God is keeping all of his promises, carrying out all of the sanctions that he promised in keeping with the covenant. God hasn't abandoned the covenant. God is enforcing the covenant. God has not abandoned his word to Israel. God is doing all that he said he would do. And the current unbelief, the current apostasy of Israel is the judgment of God upon an idolatrous nation. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. However, that's not the end of the story, is it? (laughs) As Paul has explained in our text, that is not the end of the story. There yet remains hope and hope for Israel. God's redemptive plans, God's redemptive purposes do not ultimately terminate upon the judgment of the wicked to the praise of his justice. It doesn't end there. God's plans, God's redemptive purposes, God's own glory doesn't terminate upon the judgment of the wicked. God puts his wrath, God puts his justice, God puts his judgment into the service of his mercy for the sake of his own glory. God's redemptive plans and purposes are ultimately grounded in God's determination to pour out his mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. And God's glory would be ultimately displayed in the eternal praise of a redeemed people, a true Israel, a spiritual Israel, those who would be indwelt by his spirit, who would walk in his statutes and judgments and would keep them. An innumerable multitude, think with me, brothers and sisters, an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, what Paul refers to as the election of grace, The fullness of elect Jews, beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fullness of elect Gentiles, those who share the faith of believing Abraham. And Jesus Christ, having reconciled them both in one body through his cross. That's the plan. That's the redemptive plan and purpose of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his ways past finding out. It causes Paul to worship. Right at the end of chapter 11, Paul just breaks forth in praise, in awe over the the majesty of God, the wisdom of God in saving a people for his name. Now, to illustrate this truth, it's a remarkable truth, to help us to understand it, right? What 
is God doing? (laughs) And why is he doing it? Paul lets us in behind the curtain, as it were. He gives us a peek, as it were, into the hidden counsels of God so that we can understand God's redemptive plans and purposes. And he teaches this truth to us by using a couple of familiar pictures to explain his point. How are we to understand these things? Well, let me give you an analogy. Paul speaks of the bread and the branches in verse 16. The bread and the branches. Verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay? By setting apart the first portion of a kneaded lump of dough as holy to the Lord... By setting apart that first portion, the Jews believed the rest of the lump was made holy as well. They sanctified or set apart the whole lump of dough. Because the root of the tree was set apart to God as beloved, then the branches that grow out of that root would be beloved for the sake of the root, would also be sanctified or set apart to God. So as we've seen in part one, the first fruit and the root refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the lump and the branches refer to elect Israel. Elect Israel, who as Paul would say, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. Listen to God as he speaks to Israel. Verse six, to Israel, you are a holy, a set apart, a sanctified people to the Lord your God. They are a separate people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, the Lord determined to set a distinguishing love upon them. And because of that, and because, verse 8, he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, right, for the sake of the fathers, for that reason, verse 8, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know, know this, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see what God is saying? God is working his plan. God is working his decreed purpose out in his providence as it concerns and pertains to to Israel. And God is faithful. Now it's at this point that Paul, having considered the Jews now in the the present and future uh, condition of Israel, now Paul turns back to his Gentile audience and he addresses them in verse 17. He turns to us, brothers and sisters, essentially, and says this, verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root, those patriarchs, and the fatness of the olive tree, then do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. You're not there to bring the root up, so to speak. You're not there in support of the root. That root supports you. Do not be haughty, right? So follow along with me now with Paul's analogy. Paul's analogy, Paul's illustration, God is the great vine dresser, right? God is the master arborist. He has been breaking off natural branches. In other words, he's been breaking off unbelieving Jews 
And he has been grafting in wild branches, grafting in believing Gentiles, grafting them from an uncultivated olive tree and grafting them into his cultivated olive tree. That if, it begins verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, that if is not hypothetical. Paul is explaining that this is exactly what God has been doing with unbelieving Israel. This is exactly what God has been doing with the inclusion of believing Gentiles. Now think with me, Gentiles were not a natural part of the olive tree. They're not a natural part of that tree. You are not, I am not a physical or natural descendant of Abraham. In this sense, in the analogy, we're wild olive branches. So Gentiles then who place their faith in Jesus Christ, once far off, having no hope and without God in this world, are now being grafted into the cultivated olive tree, God's cultivated olive tree of true Israel. You are made, you wild olive shafts, you wild olive branches, you are made a son of Abraham through the faith of believing Abraham. You are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 to see how Jesus Christ did that through the blood of his cross. Those who were once far off having been brought near, the two having been made one, believing Gentiles or branches from that wild olive tree were grafted in among the natural branches or believing Jews, and it has become one tree. It is one tree. It's always been one tree. It remains one tree. Wild branches do not replace natural branches. Wild branches are grafted in among the natural branches. In other words, the church is not a separate and distinct unit, a distinct entity. The church is the olive tree. The olive tree is the church. The church is true Israel. The church is spiritual Israel made up of elect Jews and elect Gentiles in one body, reconciled to God through the blood of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've been brought near, haven't you? Once far off, once aliens and strangers from the covenants of the promise, once strangers, foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel, now you have been brought near. You've been grafted in to the cultivated tree of Israel. Paul says in verse 17, that we Gentiles have now become partakers of the root and the fatness of the tree. That's a loaded statement and I love it, right? We've become partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. In other words, think with me now, by the grace of God, we are not outcast, redheaded stepchildren in the household of God. Uh, We're not Gibeonites. We're not outcasts any longer. Listen, we don't deserve to be Gibeonites, we don't deserve it. We don't, we don't deserve to be woodcutters and water carriers in the kingdom. We don't deserve that. But God has not made us Gibeonites. God has not, has not made us redheaded stepchildren, so to speak. God has made us sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. God has made us children of the promise, children of the covenant. And he has done so through the person and work of his son. We who do not not deserve to be Gibeonites, who don't deserve to be woodcutters and water carriers in the kingdom, have been made heirs of God. Joint heirs with with Jesus Christ in everything that Jesus Christ will inherit in keeping with the covenant. Brothers and sisters, we inherit with him. It's ours in him. 
We're not outcasts. We're not stepchildren, so to speak. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ share fully, fully in the covenant blessings that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We share fully in those promises. We partake of the fatness of that tree, right? Every bit of it, every bit of the marrow is ours in Jesus Christ. In reference to believing Gentiles now partaking of the root, Paul says that we're all sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. We partake of the root, the patriarchs. You are sons. You are all, Paul says it, Galatians chapter three. You are all sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. In reference to believing Gentiles, now partaking of that fatness, Paul says, if we are sons, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When you think about those things, you meditate on this masterful, infinitely wise plan of God to save a people for his own glory, right? Not to save a people who can share in any of that glory because we don't deserve that. We deserve hell. We, deserve, we don't deserve any glory of our own. We deserve hell. So God, in infinite wisdom, masterfully designs this beautiful, glorious, infinitely wise plan to redeem a people for his own glory, glory that he will not share with another, right? To his own glory, takes us from the guttermost to the uttermost, from being just devastatingly depraved sinners to being joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, It's absolutely staggering. That should cause us to rejoice. You should walk in triumph. Why? Because Jesus Christ always leads us in triumph, right? This is a triumphant manifesto of those who have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, by an imputed righteousness, not of their own, apart from works of the law. This is a triumphant manifesto of God's grace. God who is rich, rich, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Jesus Christ. He has raised us up together with Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the dead is your resurrection from the dead. And he has seated us in heavenly places so that he might demonstrate pour out upon us, lavish upon us the exceeding riches of his grace, which are exceedingly rich indeed, right? How rich are the exceeding riches of the grace of God? So rich, so exceeding that we can't even imagine what he has planned for those who love him, right? And he's going to do that, demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace by pouring out his kindness toward us in our union with Jesus Christ. We were without Christ, We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise. We were without hope and without God in the world. And we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, made to partake of the root and the fatness of that tree. Through faith in him, we are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer foreigners. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, partakers of the inheritance with the saints in the light. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, it does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. That is your heritage. 
That is your right, as it were. What warrant do we have to such grace? What warrant do we have to such mercy? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is our surety. Put your faith and your trust in him. God offers grace freely to you. He offers you as a free gift of his grace, that justifying righteousness that you need in order to be reconciled with him. He offers that freely to you through the gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ and be faith in faith and be saved. And you can inherit with him. That should be a cause of rejoicing. But listen, it is no ground for boasting. It cannot be a foundation upon which the people of God boast. Verse 18, do not boast against the branches. Do not boast against those natural branches that have been broken off. You cannot boast against them. But if you do boast, you need to remember this. You need to remember, you do not support the root. The root supports you. We are to rejoice. But we are not to rejoice over or against those who have been cut off. In other words, our rejoicing is not to devolve into gloating. Like gloating we all know well. <laughs> gloating is ugly. Gloating is filthy. Gloating is disgusting. Um, gloating is really rejoicing in another's fall, rejoicing in another's loss. The word for boast here in verse 18 implies a sense of superiority. The word for boast implies a sense of triumph over or against the natural branches that have been cut off. And we have no room for boasting. The kind of boasting that Paul warns us about in verse 18 is to show contempt for others. And it is uh, exceedingly ugly. Particularly here in verse 18, this boasting is is to show contempt for the Jews. Not, Not only to rejoice in our gain, but to rejoice or to revel in their loss. There's a sense, if you think about it with me, there's a sense of self-righteousness in it, isn't there? There's a sense of self-righteousness in that kind of boasting. Somehow we've merited this at their expense. And what we have to remember, what Paul charges us to remember is that our salvation is entirely of grace. It is all of grace, soup to nuts, right? It's all of grace. We are the little dogs who eat the scraps that fall from their master's table, right? That's who we were apart from Jesus Christ. We're the little dogs. And we, brothers and sisters, have been made like Mephibosheth. If you remember that story from the Old Testament, we are the lame ones who have been made to sit at the king's table. We don't deserve it. It is entirely of grace. Paul warns us to remember that we as mere wild branches are not able to support ourselves. We don't have any marrow within ourselves, in and of ourselves. We need the root, don't we? We need the root. We cannot live. We cannot live one breath cut off from the olive tree, cut off from God's root. In other words, verse 18, remember, you do not support the root. The root supports you. Abraham, the patriarchs received the covenant and we partake only because God has grafted us into Abraham by grace. You partake of the root because God is able to graft you in because God grafted us into Abraham by grace. It's here with that thought 
And Paul then anticipates a response from the boastful, right? He anticipates a response in verse 19. Verse 19, you will say then, or you may say, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, God has placed me now in the position of privilege. And that privilege was given to me at their expense. Why shouldn't we boast against them? That prideful or arrogant or haughty person might say. Those branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, well said. Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. You stand by faith. In other words, you don't stand by your own merit. You don't stand because of something you've done. Faith is not contributory. Faith is not meritorious. You don't stand based upon your own righteousness. You don't stand on any merit of your own. Salvation that is by grace through faith removes all ground of boasting. Ephesians chapter two. The work of another has secured your place in the tree. You see? That's Romans chapter three, verse 27. The work of another has secured your place in the tree. The natural branches weren't broke off, broken off because you were better. The natural branches weren't broke off, broken off to make room for you because you were righteous or you were lovelier or you were more lovable or because you had better works than they did. I'm a good person. They obviously weren't. I did the right thing. They did the wrong thing. I've put my faith in Jesus Christ. I've done the righteous thing. They've not. They've done the unrighteous thing. Listen, you weren't grafted in because you were better than they are. Your faith is the gift of God. Your faith is the gift of God. They were unbelieving. So do not be haughty. Do not be prideful. Do not be arrogant. Rather, you should fear. You should fear. Why is it that we are to fear? We should fear. And, and Paul's not referring to this slavish fear of God that flees at his word. Right? This slavish fear of condemnation. We know We've embraced that promise through faith that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have that. We're not to have that slavish fear of condemnation, but Paul here calls us to a healthy biblical fear of God. That is right and good. Why is it that we're to fear? We should fear because God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. We should fear because his judgments are righteous. Righteous are his judgments and just are all his ways. We should fear God, so that you do not turn to the idols of this world in unbelief as Israel has done. We learned that in Sunday school this morning through the book of Deuteronomy. Fear God. Why? Because you don't want to turn away from the living God and fall short in unbelief. You do not want to turn to the idols of this world and forsake the living God. That that presumptuous self-confidence was the very ground upon which the Jews rejected God in unbelief. That presumption was the path to their apostasy, right? Are you going to step? Are you going to step upon the same path of apostasy that the Jews were walking on? No, fear God. Cling to him who is our life. Cling to him who is our righteousness. Don't take one step down that path in departing from the living God. Don't fall according to the same example of disobedience. And notice here, not only the importance of faith, right? But the fruits of faith, humility 
and godly fear. You're to put your faith and trust in him, and it is to be a humble fear that guides us. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Dr. Murray characterizes this fear of God in his commentary on this verse. He says, Christian piety is constantly aware of the perils to faith. Godliness, true godliness is constantly aware of the perils to faith. The danger of coming short and that Christian piety is characterized by the fear and trembling which the high demands of God's calling constrain us to. We are to work out our salvation with haughty presumption and an arrogant self-confidence. No, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is warning the Gentiles by the example of God's dealings with the Jews. He's warning us by, that, by their example. When Paul, when Paul is speaking to Gentile believers in this, is Paul saying that we can lose our salvation? No. John says they went out from us because they were never really of us. They never really believed to begin with. And they went out to make manifest, to manifest that they never really believed to begin with. We cannot lose our salvation. But it's often, brothers and sisters, it's often warnings like this in scripture that serve as a means whereby God through his word preserves us in the faith. It's often warnings like this in the Bible that God uses as a means to hold us fast. And how does that work in practice? Well, if you're like me, I read these passages, I read these warnings, and it causes me to fear God. It causes me to remember that God is no respecter of persons, that God is not to be trifled with, that God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. It reminds me that our God is a consuming fire, and it reminds me to cling to him because I am sustained exclusively and entirely by his grace through alone the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do not presume to think that you stand in your own strength. Therefore, verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If, and people really don't like those conditional ifs in the Bible. But there it is, right? There it is, a little two-letter word. If you continue in his goodness. Was Paul teaching us we have to work our way to heaven? No, right? Um, that we're only gonna get there if we grit our teeth and bear it out in our own strength? No. We'll explain. Goodness towards you. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise, if you do not continue in his goodness, you also will be cut off. With this, Paul calls us to consider the just and righteous judgments of God as they pertain to the branches. God deals with his branches in justice and in righteousness. 
Praise God that we have a surety who's paid our penalty for us, amen? Praise God that where we could not live a perfect life, that Jesus Christ did, and that his perfect righteousness has been imputed to me, gifted to me, so that in God's sight, I am righteous, right? Praise God for justification. But God deals with the branches in righteousness and in justice. Severity toward those natural branches who are cut off, toward those in unbelief. Goodness toward those branches who are grafted in from among the Gentiles who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Goodness toward those. To those who fell, those who transgressed, they have received the just penalty of exacting justice. That word severity is referring to that. That word severity is referring to God's righteous wrath. That word severity is referring to God's righteous retributive justice. Referring to that judgment which is suitable to the offense. God rendering to each one according to his deeds. Ultimately, it's referring to hell. Romans chapter 2 verse 8. To those who are self-seeking, to those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. To those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, severity, severity. However, to those who have believed upon his son, to those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the beneficiaries of his goodness, that goodness defined by his mercy, by his grace, his compassion, his loving kindness, all of that secured through the perfect life and sacrificial death of God's own son. But notice with me now, verse 22, Paul says that they are the beneficiaries of his goodness if they continue in his goodness. Otherwise, if they do not continue, they will be cut off even as the others. What is Paul saying? There, listen, this is what the Bible teaches. You can go to several texts of scripture that teach this point. There can be no security. There can be no assurance for the believer apart from perseverance in the faith. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. When others may say, once saved, always saved. Is that technically true in the Bible? Yes, it is. The one who is saved cannot lose their salvation but it's the one who is genuinely justified, the one who is genuinely saved, the one who has been transformed by God, the one who has been called to God, effectually called to himself, the one who has been indwelt with his spirit. Having been indwelt with his spirit, the one who perseveres in the faith, giving evidence of a genuine, living, healthy, thriving faith, giving giving evidence that he has been indwelt by God's spirit, that one who perseveres gives evidence that they have been genuinely saved by God. So it's the one who perseveres to the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. There is security for the believer who is in Jesus Christ, but there is security only for the believer who is genuinely in union with Jesus Christ. There can be no security for the believer apart from Jesus Christ. There can be no security for the believer apart from the perseverance that his spirit ensures. You do not preserve yourself. Our salvation, start to finish, is all 
of grace. You do not preserve your, yourself. You don't have the strength to preserve yourself. You cannot keep yourself. Peter says we are kept by the what? By the power of God. You are kept by the power of God. And if, God, if you are his, he, he is going to preserve you. So perseverance of the faith, perseverance in the faith then becomes a mark of the one who has been saved by God. The one who does not continue in the faith can have no assurance that he continues in God's favor. Do you see? The one who has been called of God, the one who has been justified is the one who is kept by the power of God unto salvation. And how are they kept? They are kept by the power of God through faith. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Kept by the power of God through the means of, through the instrumentality of faith in Jesus Christ. He who endures to the end. Following Jesus Christ in faith, the one that endures to the end will be saved. Now, Paul, in saying this, is referring to the way in which God himself saves and preserves his own to salvation. Paul is referring to God's work. You are saved by grace through the instrumentality of faith in Jesus Christ, and you are kept, you are preserved by grace through the instrumentality of faith in Jesus Christ. God preserves those whom he justifies. Why is that? Why is that? Because if you remember from Romans chapter eight, those whom he foreknew, those whom he determined to set his distinguishing love upon, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, decreed that they should be conformed into the image of his son. And that which God decrees, he accomplishes. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. Those whom he predestined, he also effectually called to himself. God called them and they came in faith. Those whom he called these, that group, he also justified. And Jesus says, John chapter six, they will be raised up on the last day. He'll not lose a one of them except that son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. All of them were raised in the last day. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, these he also, speaking of it in the past tense, like it already took place, these he glorified. God will see to it. He is faithful to his word. He accomplishes all that he has set his mind and heart to accomplish. Amen? So if you are in him, you will be preserved, but you're preserved through means, through the means of what? Through the means of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the means of his grace. God preserves those whom he has justified. And just as he has justified them through the means of a vital living faith, he also preserves them through the means of a vital living faith. And the evidence that God has effectually called you in power to himself is also preserving you by his power. The evidence of that is a continuing and steadfast presence, is the continuing and steadfast presence of a vital and living faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not the dead faith that James speaks of. It's a living faith, not the dead faith of demons, (laughs) not the dead faith by which many will perish. It is a living, healthy, thriving, vital, biblical, justifying faith. It's for this reason that often in the New Testament, you just read through your Bible, right? It's often in the New Testament that the one who has believed upon Jesus Christ is exhorted to continue in the faith. Many people today think of salvation as a moment in time, some point in the past, right? Where, you know, I believed, 
and however old you were, right? And then that one, having said they believe in Jesus Christ, then goes back to their life. And they live their life. Every once in a while when they need them, they'll reach out, you know? But they're living their life, doing life for themselves, pursuing their interests, hardly giving God a second thought, not reading their Bibles. They're not really praying unless they need something. They really have no love that causes them to cling to his word. They're living life for themselves. And they think, I believed. I believed, and so I'm a Christian. I'm saved. When the New Testament says, if you have believed, continue in faith. Continue steadfast, not moved away from the confidence of the hope that we have, firm till the end. Colossians chapter 1, right? Paul warns, the one who turns away in unbelief will be cut off like the others. If someone who professes Christ turns away from falling Christ, goes back to their old life, and persists in unbelief, Paul says God will cut him off like the others. We're not to persist in unbelief. We're to persist in faith. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter three. I want to give you an example of that. Hebrews chapter three. There's so many examples of this in the book of Hebrews. Um, The book of Hebrews is filled with warnings to those who had turned back from following Christ. In Hebrews chapter three, one particular uh, warning we want to take a look at is in Hebrews chapter three, beginning in verse seven. In verse six, Look at verse six first, right? If we belong to the household of God, or we belong to the household of God, if, if we hold fast our confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. I don't know how many times I've, I've been uh, preaching the gospel to someone, um, just evangelizing, and someone will say, they have the same um, experience that I've had. And it's because of really bad teaching in really bad churches, right? It's poor teaching in the modern American church today, the modern American gospel, so-called, that's being peddled out there. And so they grew up in churches just like I grew up. Most of the churches that are out there are just like these churches where you believe that you're saved because you walked an aisle, you said a prayer, you know, whatever means or methodology they use. And because you had that experience, you're, you're saved. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Drive a stake in the ground, write it in your Bible. Don't forget the date. Right? Satan will make you doubt, but you don't doubt, right? right. All, those, all those things. And their experience is, well, I turned to Jesus Christ and then I stopped following him. Right? I, I got into high school and started living for myself, fell into sin, got in college, and I lived this abysmal lifestyle through college. I forgot about, I forgot about him. And it was later in life. You know, I was late 20s, early 30s or later, and all of a sudden I... Um, I just crushed over my sin and I realized that I had not been following the Lord as I should. And I just was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame over how I had lived and how I had shown contempt for his grace and those kinds of things. And I, I, my life changed, right? What has happened in that circumstance? They got converted for real, right? They were not a Christian before. And what was the evidence that they weren't a Christian before? They completely forsook the Lord Jesus Christ. They stopped living for him, Right. And when the Lord effectually called them to himself, they turned from their sin and they trusted him and they followed Christ in earnest. Um, That was an evidence that God had actually saved them. That's how God saved me. Um, So many um, have had that same experience. And one of the conversations that I'll have with them when I'm preaching the gospel to them is this conversation over the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That if you've turned from following Christ and you've persisted in unbelief, then you were never a Christian to begin with. And now, today is the day of salvation. 
There's hope. As long as the gospel is being preached, there's hope that someone can turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. In Hebrews chapter three, Paul wants to warn on both counts, right? Don't turn away in unbelief because you can be cut off just like the rest. Persist in faith. Cling to Christ who is your life. Israel, at the very gates of the promised land, Israel had drawn back to perdition. There were indications of unbelief in Israel all along the way. We see those on the pages of scripture, indications of their unbelief. But it was that act at the border of the promised land that seems to have sealed Israel's apostasy. That first generation sealed their apostasy. Verse seven, Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here, quoting Psalm 95, today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your father tested in me and tried me, saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That oath of God is repeated in Numbers 14 where God says, as I live, they shall not enter my wrath. God essentially says, God says, I swear on my life, they will not enter. At that point, there is no room for repentance, right? When God takes that oath, there is no longer any hope. In that first generation, their corpses are strewn in the dust of the desert in the wilderness. Beware then, brethren. Looking at that example, verse 12. Beware then, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and that evil heart of unbelief characterized by this, by departing from the living God. But rather, exhort one another daily while it is called today, right? Referencing Psalm 95, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. We know that to be true if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey... So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Mark of their unbelief was disobedience. By contrast, in the account of Israel at the border of Canaan in Numbers 14, God says this about Caleb. Listen to this in verse 24, Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and because he has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Caleb is of a different sort, right? Caleb has a different faith. Caleb has a different heart in him, a different spirit in him. What was the difference? What was the difference between Caleb and the rest of that first generation, between Joshua and the rest of that first generation? The difference is justifying faith, saving faith, genuine faith, biblical faith, a steadfast faith and a faith-filled obedience to be contrasted with a faithless disobedience, a faithless unbelief. Colossians chapter one, verse 21, you who were once alienated 
enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So back in Romans chapter 11, hang in there with me. Paul concludes then, Romans 11, verse 23. And they also, speaking now of those natural branches, they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and if you were grafted contrary to nature into God's cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, Paul here at the end of the text argues from the lesser to the greater. As easy as it would be for the master arborist to graft a wild olive branch into the cultivated olive tree, it would be that much easier then for him to graft the natural branches back into their own tree. Right? Certainly, the same grace whereby God had saved the Gentiles would be the same grace whereby God would turn again and save the Jews. This is yet another foreshadowing, if you will, of what Paul meant in verse 15 by their acceptance. What Paul meant in verse 12 by their fullness. Paul understands in the redemptive plans and purposes of God that there will be a future engrafting of ethnic elect Jews in conspicuous contrast with their current unbelief. Set in contrast with their current unbelief, there will be in the future an engrafting, the fullness, the acceptance of a large number, in contrast to their unbelief, a large number, pervasive number of believing Jews. It doesn't mean that every, uh, every Jew is going to be believing. But it is, Paul is saying, that the inflow, if you will, the ingrafting of elect believing Jews will be in stark contrast with their current unbelief. Notice this is not man's doing. We do not place ourselves in the tree. They do not place themselves back in the tree. Verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, in other words, if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then they, verse 23, will be grafted in. Why? Because they did it. They believe. I walked that aisle. I did it. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. No, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. God is able to graft them in again through the gospel and only through the gospel. There's no one attached to that tree who has not put faith in Jesus Christ. Not a one. Not one in that tree who has not put faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is not speaking of another distinct group of people. They are, these are added to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Elect Jews and elect Gentiles in one body through the cross in one olive tree. You see? One olive tree. We're not growing two trees here. We're not growing two trees. And I love and am grateful for many of our dispensational brothers, but you simply can't support dispensationalism from the Bible. And as much as we love them, the Bible doesn't teach dispensationalism. If you're unfamiliar with that term, I invite you to 
to look at that. Dispensationalism is an error that took root in the 20th century. And it continues to confuse evangelicalism today. It is a confusing error. It's a, it's a problematic error on multiple levels. It produces bad, even in some cases, bitter fruit because the Bible doesn't teach it. It's an error that predominantly confuses the relationship between Israel and the church. It confuses that relationship. It's thought of, Israel and the church, thought of or conceived of as two distinct peoples of God. And God deals with those two groups distinctly. Brothers and sisters, it's not what the Bible teaches. You can see here, lessons from the olive tree. There is one tree, one body. We are all reconciled in that one body through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one olive tree rooted with the patriarchs in the soil of God's covenant promises to Abraham, secured through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, purchasing the new covenant with his own blood. And what, brothers and sisters, is the one mark that is characteristic of all those who are a part of that one tree? What is the one mark? What is it? It is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died so that we might have life in him. And salvation, there is salvation in no other way. There is no other name by which we might be saved, right? Jesus Christ alone, faith in Jesus Christ alone. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do what you have been called to do. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot take matters into your own hands and be faithless or unbelieving. We're to follow him. In following him, brothers and sisters, we are to cling to him who is our life and he will preserve us to the end for his own glory and for our our eternal good. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the words here spoken by Paul, your words, inspired by you, breathed out by you, profitable to us. We thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you for these truths. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them Bless them to our minds, renew our minds there by them, by your spirit. Bless them, Lord, to our hearts. We might embrace them through faith and live for you as we continue steadfast until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be to your everlasting praise and glory. May it be to the exaltation of the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be to your praise in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.